go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dear? Tell he, me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. <laughs> Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side, as always, in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, your intrepid crew is taking a deep dive into Dracula, specifically three films, early films, Nosferatu, the 1931 Dracula that starred Bela Lugosi, and we're also going to cover the other 1931 Dracula, the Spanish version. So straight away, we're going to kick it over to the satellite, to Walker. Why don't you uh, give us a little intro to what Bram Stoker gave us all those many, many years ago, the novelization of Dracula. Thank you, Larry. Well, yes, we thought it was really appropriate in this month of October, which, of course, as Monster Kids, we celebrate Halloween all through October and even maybe September or August. <laughs> all um, throughout the year. Throughout the year. Well, yeah. uh, but, you know, Dracula, as one of the great monsters, uh, deserves definitely an entire podcast, if not more, uh, episodes. So, uh, as you mentioned, all three of these films we're looking at uh, in this episode are based off of Bram Stoker's 
novel, Dracula, published in 1897. So yes, quite a while ago, but has stood the, the test of time. And of course, you know, no novel that's ever adapted for film uh, is, you know, perfectly adapted. They've all been, it's always been changed and altered in right. many ways. Um, but uh, the basic core idea of this sort of uh, ancient uh, count from Transylvania, who is an undead being, you know, traveling to England, or I suppose in the case of uh, Nosferatu, I suppose Germany, but anyway, traveling abroad and then seeking out new victims um, has been told so many times, but these early films um, certainly stick in the memory. And looking back at, at Bram Stoker and his works, you know, he wrote a bunch of other things besides Dracula, but this was really the one that stuck with people. And there's, I was doing a little reading about it, and I, I guess there's a certain amount of controversy as to whether um, somebody might have doctored his writing a little bit, because it seems like this one is better written than maybe a lot of his other works. So, but who knows? It, it's a mystery for, uh, for history, let's say. Um, I thought it might be a little amusing, though, to look at a sequence that's in the novel that wasn't in any of these three movies, um, which is when the characters go and they actually go and stake Lucy, who we see sort of as the woman in white in at least uh, two of these films. I don't remember if she was in Nosferatu. As uh, she was in, in Nosferatu, yeah. Okay. She was. was she wearing um, white? Again, just about everyone in Nosferatu. <laughs> Black or white. <laughs> but uh, we didn't really see her her end, and and at least not um, on screen. So in in the novel, um, Van Helsing, along with uh, several other members of the story, including Arthur, who is not in any of the the films, not these film versions anyway. Um, they go and uh, they're about to stake her and they're having everyone except Van Helsing is kind of having their doubts about it, this. And so Van Helsing is trying to encourage Arthur to to do this. And uh, Arthur says, uh, go on, said Arthur hoarsely. Tell me what I am to do. Take this stake in your left hand, ready to place the point over the heart and the hammer in your right. Then when we begin our prayer for the dead, I shall read him, I have here the book, and the others shall follow, strike in God's name, so all may be well with the dead that we love, and that the undead pass away. Arthur took the stake and the hammer, and when once his mind was set on action, his hands never trembled nor ever quivered. Then Helsing opened his missile and began to read, and Quincy and I followed as well as we could. Arthur placed the point over the heart, and as I looked, I could see its dent in the white flesh. Then he struck with all his might. The thing in the coffin writhed, and a hideous, blood-curdling screech came from the opened red lips. The body shook and quivered and twisted in wild contortions. The sharp white teeth champed together till the lips were cut and the mouth was smeared with a crimson foam. But Arthur never faltered. 
He looked like a figure of Thor as his untrembling arm rose and fell, driving deeper and deeper the mercy-bearing stake, whilst the blood from the pierced heart welled and spurted up around it. His face was set and high duty seemed to shine through it. The sight of it gave us courage so that our voices seemed to ring through the little vault. And then the writhing and quivering of the body became less and the teeth ceased to champ and the face to quiver. Finally, it lay still. The terrible task was over. Yeah. So kind of a very dramatic, and I suppose for those times, pretty uh, disturbing scene. <laughs> which well, that would have made a cool scene in any of the movies. Yeah, definitely. But it gives me maybe a little bit of a taste of the novel. And if you haven't read it, I would really um, recommend to anybody to to give it a chance. It's not the easiest read. Everything in the novel is in the format of a, a letter, essentially, to someone else. And so all the different characters writing letters to each other and basically putting the story together um, via letters. So it's a little bit difficult to read um, you know, base, basically not the way we are used to reading novels nowadays, but as a cultural touchstone, I think it's well worth reading. Oh, I, I can't, I can't hear. You know, leading, leading into Nosferatu, Larry yeah. has demonstrated that it is in fact a silent film. <laughs> Larry was going to sneeze and he, Muted his mic. Muted himself. Bring it back. But, yeah, I think so. We like a, would be uh, the next. We need like a dialogue card to come up and <laughs> talk. Just checking to see if you guys are paying attention out there. <laughs> but yeah, Bob, do you want to start us off with Nosferatu? Since yeah, you know, we all we picked a movie, and I did pick the Nos. So uh, I need to adjust my light here so I can read some of my notes. Uh, yeah, Nosferatu was filmed in 1921, released in 1922 from a company called Prana Films, P-R-A-N-A. And they were founded mainly to make cult, well, occult and uh, horror films. Hmm. However, Nosferatu was the only film they ever made. So they went out of business basically after Nosferatu. But uh, we'll kind of get into the problems with Nosferatu in a minute. But um, it was basically a uh, un unauthorized German film based on Bram Stoker's Dracula, and uh, I guess this was kind of a a thing in Germany back then, because interestingly enough, before Nosferatu came out, there was a film that um, the director F. W. Marno made just before Dracula, another company called The Head of Janus. And it was sort of a uh, unauthorized uh, version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And uh, the film's been lost over time. But I guess the big thing of note for that film was one of the uh, supporting characters in the cast was played by this Hungarian actor named Bela Lugosi. Hmm. So anyways, um, so yeah, so that was unauthorized and Nosferatu was an unauthorized version of Dracula. And they do, now depending on the version you watch, they do change all the names. 
but there are versions where the names are changed back to Dracula and Van Helsing and Mina and what have you. That's the version Um, I saw. Yeah. Was this done to protect the innocent? I guess. (laughs) Well, see, the thing is, there were some scenes in there that are not in the book, and there's some things that were changed, names were changed. But after it had its big premiere in Berlin, Florence Stoker, the wife, or at that time the widow Uh of uh, Bram Stoker, got wind of it and basically went in and sued Prana Films. And she didn't win the case for like 10 years. But once she won the case, the court basically said that Prana Films had to destroy all prints of the movie. Now, luckily, some prints had gotten out to foreign distribution, and those are the ones that exist today. And again, depending on which one you see, some of them have the changed names and some of them have the actual names from the novel. Uh, So uh, Max Schreck basically played Count Orlock, or if you have the other version, Count Dracula. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, for 1922, the makeup was amazing. You know, this is not your typical Bela Lugosi Dracula vampire with the slick back hair and, you know, the regal look. No, he's got like rat teeth and pointed ears and bald head <laughs> and uh, just an amazing, amazing job with makeup. And uh, and so, uh, fortunately, prints were destroyed, but it really depends. There's a couple there's at least three versions that I know of. There's the one with the original names. There's the one with the Stoker names. And then there's actually a third that's at a different speed. If you think think about silent films, everybody moves really fast and they talk really fast and the dialogue cards come up. Well, in two of the versions, they slowed it down. So the movements actually seem more natural. But there's a version out of the original speed. And so if you watch two of the versions, they're 90 minutes long. If you watch the one at the original speed, it's only an hour. Hmm. So that's how much it was sped up by. But watching the one-hour version, that was as the film was originally intended back when it was made. And, uh, and Max Shrek did an amazing performance. And in fact, there was a movie in uh, 2000 called Shadow of the Vampire with William Dafoe, in which they uh, basically stretched the tale a little bit and say that Max Shrek was an actual vampire, which is why he was so good in that film. That's an interesting <laughs> movie. Yeah. It's, it's worth. I don't know. I don't know if he was really a vampire or not. Well, you know, his last name translates to terror. Yeah. In German. <laughs> so yeah, but I, you know, Nosferatu. Uh, like I say, if you watch the film, yes, the structure of it and the flow of it is very much like the novel or the other films, but there's some interesting changes. And one of those changes is that when he 
comes over, well, not to here or to England. He goes to Germany, and he brings all his coffins. Well, the coffins don't contain his brides. The coffins contain rats, thousands, mm. millions of rats. And uh, <laughs> so basically he brings and spreads the plague, mm-hmm. which if you watch the film, you know, he, he bites a few people, but it's basically the plague that kills more people than, uh, than uh, Count Orla. And uh, I think that's also demonstrated by there's a scene where he's walking towards his new castle, carrying one of his coffins, just a solitary person with a coffin. But there's also a scene where you have basic parade of people coming down this road, all carrying coffins. And those were all the people who had died from the plague in that neighborhood. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's almost like, look how many died of the plague. And, you know, here he is with his one coffin yeah. and he was basically more obsessed with Nina. And I can't remember what her name was in the, in the original Nosferatu version, but um, he was more interested in her really than anyone or anything else. But it's a very moody film. It's a very, sl- it's a very slow film unless you watch the sped up version. Then <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, like I say, it's worth it just to see, um, Max Shrek's uh, portrayal of the vampire. And in fact, I'm going to pull this over here. The uh, sped up version I watched was actually this one, which you can get from Novemberfire.com. If and you're watching done, YouTube, Bob's holding up a. That's right. If, if you're not watching on YouTube, it's a DVD of Nosferatu. And uh, it's basically, like I say, it's been. Streffen Taylor took this and dubbed it, added sound effects, and added music by his group Hobgoblin, and uh, and runs it at the regular speed. So, fast paced, cool music, interesting voices. In fact, friends of the show, Will Vaharo and Monica Vaharo, do voices in there. So, uh, something to look for, but, uh, if you're going to watch the movie, I'd suggest watching that one, uh, because it's definitely for people with, uh, lesser attention spans. I, um, came across the Benny Hill version of it, five minutes. It was, no. <laughs> yeah. that was about, I think it was like in 2000, I don't know. It was a while back. Um, Streffen would bring these silent films over and I would transfer them from pneumatic tape that he had them on onto a digital format so he could actually do these. So he ended up doing Nosferatu, uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and Der Golem. So all three are available, all three, same format, where they're dubbed and music and sound effects added. So, nice. so there you go. That's my early sensor suite pitch. <laughs> What struck me watching this film, and it is it is kind of, I get that it's kind of a slog, but I, I think there's a real value in seeing a silent movie like this and just realizing, like, even 
how much progress was made in film technology, film acting and everything, even just 10 years later, or think about, this was in 22, made in 21, but think about like all the movies that came out in the forties that we consider to be classics nowadays. You know, you look at things like, I don't know, Casablanca and um, God, there's like a zillion Westerns and war film, but there's all these films and, and look how far advanced they were, or even just looking at, like Dracula, which still seems really primitive because it doesn't have a soundtrack and, you know, a lot of the direction seems kind of stolid. And But, you know, think how far it advanced from in just 10 years or 20 years even. And like, think about 20 years now in film. There's not that much difference when you watch a movie from like 2023 or, I mean, 20, 2003, 2023, it's like, yeah, there's technical advances, but not these huge leaps of advancement that they made. So like seeing, watching that film, it was just like, holy cow, it was just a step above like single photographs. I mean, it was just sort of like barely above that, you know, I will, I will give it this though. It's, it has a moodiness to it Mm -hmm. that, you know, is undeniable. Um, it has a lot of great imagery that I think is almost more impactful in the still photos from the film than maybe the film itself. So some of the things where you see the imagery of, of Orlok slash Dracula, um, that image of, of him, which is really much more similar to the descriptions in the novel with like the pointed ears, the the way his face is shaped, the, the fingernails and everything, not an attractive figure at all. That sort of suave, gentlemanly vampire mm-hmm. was not, you know, the way he was described in the in the novel. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, that Nos- Nosferatu is, is a really interesting look. And then, like, talking about, like, the whole thing with the plague, I almost wondered if there was sort of, like, I don't know, racist undertones to that whole thing, like this. Well, yeah, re- reading about the movie, supposedly there were some like anti-Semitism. I wondered about that running through it. And if you think of it too, I mean, it's a German film, and well, it was just like uh, less than twenty years later, right? We had the whole Holocaust and all that, but um, yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, the interesting thing when he's coming over on the ship the Demeter, it's like he's not killing the crew. It's the plague from the rats that killed most of the crew, except for the captain and the first mate. And I think the mm-hmm. first mate actually commits suicide, jumps over the side, and the captain straps himself or ties himself to the wheel. And so, you know, it's kind of implied that maybe uh, Orlock killed him, but uh, it's not like the other movies where it's basically intimated that the, the vampire or the, the Dracula killed the crew. It's like, right. this is all. And again, you know, the plague was the, the main thing in the movie that uh, was the quote villain. I mean, he let the plague loose, but um, uh, like I say, the plague killed way more people than, uh, than Orlock did. And I saw some commentary somewhere, and I don't remember where, and they said something about, remember the Spanish flu 
had happened, you know, not that long before the film was made. So I guess that mm-hmm. was probably a big influence on it too. Oh yeah. It it seemed like it was a representation of death that the viewers at that time could relate to. Mm-hmm. Um you know, yeah, the 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 undertones of, of racism I think were there as well, but it was just something relatable that people and, and Orloff you know, with with all three of the films that we're going to talk about tonight, there there's different parts of the book that wind up in those films in certain ways. Whether it's the character or the the way that Dracula is portrayed, I thought it was very um, interesting. And I've said this before on other films: there was no special effects, no computer. These people were acting their asses off <laughs> as best they could, and you know, working in the silent film era, there were certain tricks that you could manipulate the camera or, or what we were mm-hmm. going to watch that was filmed in the camera. And I think they did that very well, playing with the shadows and and things like that. Um, I also appreciate there were a lot of silent film stars that for whatever reason couldn't make the transition over to the quote unquote talkies. Yeah, um, that were, were very popular. I mean, uh, Charlie Chaplin's the first one that comes to mind. Um, Buster Keaton and you know some others. Um, so it was interesting um, how they portrayed Dracula as Orlock and and the story that they told. I think if you've never seen it, you should watch it. I think it's still effective in its own world and in its own way. Um, I mean, even if you want to watch it silent and not dubbed, right. you can go on YouTube. You can find the hour-long version. And, uh, and it, again, it's that's the way they intended it. That's how they originally filmed it. So, um, And, I, you know, it, it was interesting because watching – because I watched the 90-minute version, and then I found my DVD from Streffen and watched that one. <laughs> and uh, – just the film being sped up, it was like a totally different film. It was like the slow parts weren't on screen as much as they were in the 90-minute version. So it's just kind of the pace is very crisp. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure they, you know, that's the way they originally filmed it. That's what they intended. So um, slowing the film down basically, I think, kind of ruined the pacing of the whole thing. But what about some of the parts? I mean, I would think it would make a lot of the film really comical because like the parts where he pops up from the coffin and some of the other. Well, I mean, the one part that really stood out was when the stage was when the coach was going up towards the castle and it goes fast and it's just like comically fast. And it's like, okay, maybe slow that down a little bit, but. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. It's like, Whoa, look at that. Look at that thing go. I'll say this. I saw it on Amazon prime. They, I think they had a couple of versions. I don't know, but Mm -hmm. the, the version I saw, the music was just horrible. It it didn't seem to fit (laughs) with any of the scenes. It seemed highly inappropriate. It was very, very distracting. And I, mostly turned the sound off was that like the organ score 
Yeah, it was like an organ. Yeah, and it was just, yeah. oh, it was like you'd have people getting attacked and it would be like this, sounded like a carnival. It just, it was just terrible. Was, so, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Someone's getting killed in the background here. Right. Where's the circus? Oh, my. But. Like I said, I, you know, I, for what it was, I mean, the first time I watched the 90 minute version, it was definitely a slog. It was very hard to sit through. Yeah, I think I even yeah. dozed off a couple of times, but yeah. uh, the one hour version, it was crisp. It was good. So if you got to watch it, that's the one to watch. I, uh, I forgot about Streffen's uh, version. So I, I will not have watched it for the podcast, but I will end up watching it uh, during the spooky season of October. October. Yeah, just go to, like I say, NovemberFire.com. A lot hey. of cool t-shirts there, but there is a DVD section and you can get the three titles I mentioned and, and some other pretty interesting ones. So. Uh, he's got a great selection of DVDs. He has yeah. one on Playland at the beach. Uh, the Cliff House, uh, Cable Cars. Uh, there's a Creature Features thing he put out there. There's a Halloween. I, I love he and his wife. Oh, the Halloween one. Yeah, amazing. People, yeah. Some of those that we mentioned were kind of local slants, but the Halloween one is like old, like Halloween songs, not like Monster Mash and that, but I mean like old children's Halloween songs that he's put to videos and pictures of the of the time cards yeah costume another one very interesting that he has that i thought was one of his best was a uh, documentary on frank pierce oh that's a good one too uh he's the guy who did the makeup of course for dracula wolfman frankenstein all the classic universal uh, monsters and uh yeah it was it's a definitely a really good yeah, if you're into Universal Monsters or, or the makeup, then check that one out. Huge spoiler here about the the Jack Pierce. I never knew he ended his career working on Mr. Ed. Until <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. I was like, wow, it all makes sense now. No, just kidding. Well, Is that why Ed had like bolts that. on the side of his nose? <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say, Walker? I said the horse can't talk back. Yeah. <laughs> um, with enough peanut butter, he could do many things besides talking. And <laughs> let's let's not go there, please. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well. <laughs> you know, um, this seems about as good a place to transition over to Bella. Uh, Bella Lugosi version of uh, Dracula. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And and I have my notes down here. Uh, one of the things that was interesting to me is before Nosferatu, there was an Austrian silent film called, uh, it translates to Dracula's death. It was Austrian. And there's only like three or four stills of the film. All copies were lost or destroyed. And uh, the, the Dracula character has like this really big, bushy hairdo as opposed to Nosferatu is just bald. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, I, I thought that was very interesting. Um, Dracula, you know, he, there was a lot of plays uh, for Bram Stoker's Dracula. And uh, 
um, you know, various actors played the character throughout, you know, its production. Um, when it came to Hollywood, though, Carl Lemley Jr. Uh, saw box office potential for this Dracula. And one of the things you'll appreciate, the way it was portrayed, you know, um, a lot of people argue Creature from the Black Lagoon is not really a monster. It was, you know, shot at and prodded and, you know, fell in love with the girl. Frankenstein didn't ask to be created. Dracula is Dracula. I mean, he's just evil, you know, and, and it's an existing evil, you know, um, and like I say, one of the things you'll appreciate if you read the book is the different pieces of the book that they put in each film. Um, this was, what was it? Carl Lemling. Um, you know, prior to Dracula it came out in 1931, they had success at Universal with The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera. And, um, you know, they, they obviously wanted to cash in on that, you know, type of film. Um, sorry. But September 29th, 1930, Dracula began shooting at Universal. And they gave it a pretty good budget, a little over 300000 And uh, they, they gave it about 30 days. And the interesting thing, uh, Walker's going to cover the Spanish version, but um well let me take a step back um after looking at several actors and including um oh my god hunchback of notre dame is not claude rain lon cheney uh, lon cheney thank you so much your mission commander is sleep deprived <laughs> um and and it made me really like imagine what if lon cheney played dracula what a what a different you know, version of that character we would have gotten. You know, all anyway, the makeup on and stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. It would have been a whole different slant on it. He would have not looked like a suave gentleman. He probably, well, we, you know, he had that. We'll never, uh, nobody's ever been able to see it, but London After Midnight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, you know, they, Bella Lugosi had played Dracula in one of the stage productions. He's an expatriate Hungarian. And um, he, he had a very thick accent. And there's rumors that, you know, some of the stuff he read phonetically because he, he didn't understand the language that well. I don't know. You know, I guess it depends on who you talk to. But uh, September 1930, they started production. They filmed Dracula. All the sets were at Universal. And they filmed Dracula during the day. And at night, another crew would come in and film the Spanish version of Dracula using the same sets. Um, Karen's gonna gonna get into that uh, don't, version. Don't of steal Dracula. my thunder, dude. Um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna leave that alone. I'm I'm gonna let you get into it. Um, it was very interesting. Um, anyway, um, one of the things they did it was the hundredth anniversary of Universal Studios. I was watching a documentary on the Blu-ray, and they went in and they digitized and they cleaned up the sound and and uh whatnot so if you have a chance to get the blu-ray i think it was was it 2000 or 19 maybe it was 97 because it was 100 years anyway 
Um, it, it's just, it's superb. There's not the hissing that you get sometimes. Um, and you can even watch it with a horrible Philip Glass uh, soundtrack. <laughs> you you could. I, I recommend not doing that. Um, one of the other things that I found interesting in doing my research at that, you know, at that point, um, talkies were relatively new. And that's why with Dracula, there's no like soundtrack and a lot of the Foley um, work that you'd hear like footsteps or, you know, knives and forks jingling at a table weren't really in there. And they decided when they were going to restore the film, not to do that, not to mess with the original intent of the filmmakers and the actors. And so um, there were some markets where they released Dracula as, as a silent film. They, they, you know, removed the, the, the sound. So, you know, they put up a place card and they could use that to go into different markets as well. So if they're going to have like the film play in, I don't know, Bangladesh or wherever, they just insert the talking card or the card for the dialogue um, like they would anywhere else. But I think the, uh, the fact that it doesn't have a soundtrack yeah. and it does not have sound effects makes it all more creepier. I, I think so too. And I will say, you know, at that point, it was a big gamble for the studio because a lot of people, you know, who's Bella after Dracula, you know, his, his name was recognized. Um, but they, they put a lot of money in, into this, you know, and, and they did it right. They got the rights from the Stoker estate or I don't, I don't know if his wife was still alive or not. Um, I don't think I have that in my notes, but um, anyway, it was well received. Um, the film was originally, I thought this was interesting, was originally released with the running time of 85 minutes. Um in 1936, the production code was enforced, and for that reason, two scenes are known are known to have been censored. the The biggest deletion was an epilogue, which played only during the film's initial run, and it's a scene similar to the prologue from Frankenstein. It says, "You know, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen, a word before you go. We hope the memories of Dracula and Renfield won't give you bad dreams. So, just a word of reassurance." When you get home tonight and the lights have been turned out and you are afraid to look behind the curtains and you dread to see a face appear at the window, why, just pull yourself together and remember that, after all, there are such things as vampires. And I, apparently that was enough for them to, like, axe it. And you yeah. can, they actually have it in the Blu-ray. Um, so if you want to watch it, it's it's interesting. Um, but yeah, what did you guys think? I know, you know, we've all seen Dracula, but rewatching it, were there things that you didn't necessarily, uh, remember or. No, I think I, I remembered a lot of it. Uh, I do enjoy the film. One part that I always love watching for is when, uh, Bela's walking up the stairs towards the big spider web. And he basically, you know, his camera angles, but he basically walks through it yeah. without mm -hmm. disturbing the web. And then Renfield comes up the stairs and he's got his cane. And he has to like sit there and, you know, hack through the web to get through it. But it's very much 
a kind of a blink and you'll miss it type of scene. And uh, just something to look for. And it's basically during the, you know, when they first meet, but. Uh, I love I was, that scene. I always like watching for that one. It's good. I agree. And, and you're right. It's just the camera. There's, there's no, you know, take the web down, put it back up, <laughs> you know. That's well, a good, it's a good way to indicate his supernatural presence, right? Mm-hmm. Somehow he walks through the web undisturbed. But, you know, and, and I will say this is only twice that he played Dracula, interestingly enough. This film, and then you guys know the other performance was in... A classic. Abbott and Costello. Uh, that's right. And what I noticed was kind of cute in the, the the box set of the Blu-rays was uh, The Mummy has Abbott and Costello meet the mummy in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Abbott and Costello meet are included with the other films. I'm like, okay, well, you know, you go with your, your stars, I guess. But yeah. I think Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein is basically the the cream of the crop. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt. I just, I found it funny that they throw Abbott and Costello in with the other films. Well, they were huge, huge stars back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They absolutely were. And it was big enough to bring Bella back. And, you know, I I will say this with regards to Abbott and Costello, with all the comedy going on, Bella still brought it. You know, it it had been better part of, you know, what, a decade or more uh, since he played Dracula and and he got back into character and you know um, and he had declined quite a bit i mean his, right he had had a lot of issues which i don't think we anybody listening to the podcast probably knows what we're talking about so uh yeah, yeah he did i mean he did a, a good job coming back but one can only wonder like gosh what would it have been like to have gotten like a return of dracula movie with bella lugosi in it you know, or the at one time the plan was to have Wolfman versus Dracula. Um, right. You know, what if he had continued to play that role similar to the way like Lon Chaney Jr. was the Wolfman? And, right. you know, if we got multiple Dracula films. Because, I mean, honestly, the selling point to me of this movie is Bela Lugosi. Because there's a lot of times where the movie is kind of like slow or there's like, you know, not a, a great deal going on. Or some of the other actors are are not too tremendously exciting, except for you know maybe Renfield and Van Helsing. Oh yeah. But but like Lugosi was born for this role. He's mm-hmm. there's he has such an aura of menace about him in the role, even when he's quiet. Mm-hmm. It feels like God. This guy is scary. You don't know what he's going to do. You know. Well, he's, scary. he's got that stare too. Yeah. Right. There, there's a, a a sensuality or a sexuality about his portrayal of Dracula. And it's not overt, but, you know, Bella's a very handsome man. He has that Hungarian accent. And it, I could see, you know, it being kind of confusing at the time. Is he sexy or is he evil or, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's an interesting um duality i think that he brought to the character that was not in nosferatu most certainly no um well i mean one of the early scenes is when he basically goes to the opera right and it's like he could definitely be 
you know, a European, you know, aristocrat just going into the opera and, you know, right. he's dressed up and, you know, he blends right in. It's not like, you know, look at this evil guy coming in here. It's like they really can't tell. You know, I, I agree with you. One of the things that, you know, and I'm, I'm pulling a, a Steve here. Sorry to uh, mention Karen's brother. But as I watched this film, I watched the Spanish version before I watched Bella. Um, and I was wondering, watching the Spanish version and then also in, in Lugosi, how did he find Renfield? There was no telephone <laughs> back then. How did he get the paperwork for Carfax Abbey? Yeah. But the thing is, this is one thing I noticed in this that I didn't really think about before. When he's going to the opera, there's a car that pulls up and takes off. So apparently it's set in what was then contemporary times, right? Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe Renfield was the chauffeur. <laughs> so somehow, so the carriages, yeah. were, carriages were back at the castle and the cars, you're right. Were... I have to open the door and let Cadet Campbell out. I'm I'm still in listening distance. No, no problem. <laughs> so, you know, you know what one thing is missing from not only Dracula, yeah, but all the Universal vampire films. What's that? Fangs. Yeah, that, none of you're the vampires right. have fangs. Yeah, and and yeah. none of them, none of them had fangs, even in the not to take your thunder away, Walker, even in the Spanish. Uh, well, even like John Carradine, right? And, uh, you know, when he played Dracula, yeah, no, no one had fangs back then. Yeah, that's interesting. That's one thing Nos Nosferatu had. He had the two rat fangs, right? Um, but of course, in all the movies, that people have the two puncture wounds in their neck, and they did have the the puncture wounds in in this film too. I thought it was interesting. Um, well, in the censor sweep, I'll, I'll mention how I got to thinking about this. But um, in Dracula, they use garlic. In the Spanish version, it was wolfbane. Yeah, I noticed that as well. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? They yeah, the they mythology was wolfbane. Yeah. yeah, and then another thing that Nosferatu introduced into vampire lore was the vampire could be killed by the sunlight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because supposedly now I haven't read I haven't read the novel, you guys have. But supposedly I was reading that in the novel, he shuns the sunlight. He lives, you know, he he's awake during the night, but he can go out in sunlight. He yeah. He just prefers the dark. But it's like the sunlight does not melt him or turn him into dust or well, yeah he's, uh, he's not going out in bermuda shorts but you know. <laughs> right. he can wear a sunblock and walk around just it's, yeah it's it's the stake in the heart that's the yeah and after you know different vampire movies came out that's when the mythology you know um sunlight running water uh you have to oh, invite them into yeah, that look at hammer hammer had all sorts of crazy right. stuff after a while like a <laughs> Twig from this tree. Boy, he landed on the twig. The other thing that I always find really goofy uh, in an entertaining way is uh, at the beginning when they go into the crypt and you see crazy, I almost said a bad word, crazy stuff like armadillos. Oh, yeah. Which I guess probably, probably like 
yeah, yeah. might have been strange to some people at the time. And then what looks like a um, Jerusalem cricket coming out of a tiny coffin. Why? Yeah. Why? <laughs> That's um, his pet. He made him a little coffin. And just, maybe yeah. maybe these were were representations of of creatures of the night. I mean, armadillos come out at. I don't That's know. Strange. I have no idea. So they yeah. don't make any music. Yeah, <laughs> just like well, what's like weird looking animals that we could throw in here? It's like, yeah. Oh, okay. But yeah, when I was watching the Spanish version, I was like, okay, they're going to have an armadillo here. Are they going to have you know, a possum? Oh, in well, my well, opinion, the Spanish version, the armadillo had more screen time. It could just be me, but seriously, I, he was on screen longer. Well, should we then segue into... You want to segue into the Spanish version? Let us segue. I, I want to say one more thing about Bella, though. Um, it was striking to me, and I never really thought about this until watching the documentary. Um, well, actually, before I talk about the documentary, his portrayal of Igor in Son of Frankenstein is superb. Yeah. The man could act. And, and unfortunately, because of life, he never got that opportunity to get more roles that were meaty, uh, if you will. Um you know, the Ed Wood movie, they made a point that Martin Landau won an Academy Award for portraying Bella Lugosi, who was portraying Dracula and the other characters, yet Bella never got that honor. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting kind of twist of fate. I, I agree with the. With I mean, yeah, he has some pretty good roles opposite Boris Karloff in some films. That oh, were, yeah. Absolutely. Overtly horror, but you know, yeah. Yeah. He's. But let us uh, let us segue over to the Spanish version. Spanish version. Uh, we'll kick it over to the satellite. Walker, take it away. Well, I think we were all kind of discussing pre pre recording, like where or when had we seen the Spanish version, and then we said, "Wait, let's save it for the podcast." So yeah. I know for me personally, I had not seen it or really heard much about it until the. Um, those DVD box sets started coming out, I don't know, in the, I want to say the early 2000s. Okay, yeah. I wasn't sure if it was the late 90s, early 2000s. It's but... like early 2000s, or at least that's when I was aware of them. Okay. And uh, I know like the on the old um, classic horror film board, people were saying, oh, you got to watch the Spanish Dracula. It's <laughs> better than the regular Dracula. And I was like, oh. What is this thing? Okay, I, I gotta watch it. But that's that's kind of where I I don't recall ever seeing it as a kid anywhere. So that was my. I first hadn't time. even heard of it. Unlike a lot of the movies we talk about, I did not see these in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old, but I'm not that old. So uh, yeah, same for me. It was when the DVDs came out, and I was like, I thought I saw you know Spanish version. I thought it was just dubbed. Until mm -hmm. I actually watched it, I said, whoa, yeah, this is a totally different film. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, I remember, you know, Lord Blood Raw used to do these live shows out at the Chenard Vineyard. Um, unfortunately, Chenard has gone the way of the dodo, so there's no longer shows there. But he, he played a Dracula, Frankenstein, like double bill. And... I want to say Lord Blood Raw is the one who turned me on to to that Spanish version mm -hmm. of Dracula. 
Did he play the Spanish version or no? He did not. He oh. did not. And I could have swore, because when I looked at the picture of the actor and his name, I'm sure, Walker, you have, I thought I saw it, but maybe I just saw a documentary or something. Well, so you, this... you might have been thinking of Count Floyd from SCTV, because he does kind <laughs> okay. of look just like him. That's, that's probably what it is. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I, I had texted you guys the other day. I had a devil of a time finding it on the Dracula Blu-ray. It's under yeah. commentary. At the top yeah, it's of down the in the extras. But... It's in a, yeah, it's hidden in the bonus features. Yeah, and I'm like, uh, okay. But anyway, I, I found it, uh, and I I enjoyed it. I, you may ask, Walker, uh, I, I enjoyed it very, very much, but I do not think it is superior. Well, let's... Uh, okay. Let's wait until we okay. cool. start to discuss it. But for, for our audience who may not have seen the Spanish version of Dracula, also mm. from 1931. Um, so Larry kind of described a little bit of how it came to be. Essentially, back in those days, Universal and maybe other studios, I don't know about the other studios, but Universal would sort of do this double dip sometimes with productions, um, especially the ones that you know they were investing a lot into. Uh, they would do this double dip for foreign markets, especially Spanish-speaking market, where they would essentially reuse the same sets and props and all those things and uh, the, and the script and, and just refilm it in Spanish and then send it out to the Spanish markets. Um, and so they did the same thing with Dracula. They were like, okay, you film Dracula in English during the day. And then in the evening, so these... You know, poor folks doing the Spanish version had to come in at night and film it overnight. And they did this, you know, for like three or four weeks. They they turned these films around pretty quickly. It was like a 22-day shooting schedule. Right. So the folks involved in this, the producer was a guy named Paul Coner. He was a young guy, only I think 27 years old. The director was George Melford, a former actor. Our Dracula in this feature is a man named Carlos Villarios. Yes. Now, Carlos is no Bela, and we can get into that when we discuss the film. <laughs> our, our Mina is named, is called Eva in this production, and she was played by Lupita Tovar, and she was had been sort of a beauty queen and then brought in to, to act. And so she didn't have a lot of acting experience. And the other two main characters worth discussing, Renfield in this was played by Pablo Alvarez Rubio and Van Helsing by Eduardo Arroz Maria. I'm trying to read both my handwriting and see in the dark here. <laughs> now, if... Dracula looked like Count Floyd. I will say Van Helsing looked like Eugene Levy. No kidding. I, <laughs> that guy, I was, when I was looking at, I was like, who does he look like somebody? He reminds me of somebody. And I couldn't figure out who he reminded me of. And I saw this video. I, I was looking at different videos about Spanish Dracula, trying to get any other information. And this guy said, oh, he looks like Eugene Levy. And I was like, that's it. He looks <laughs> like Eugene Levy. So we got two guys who look like they belong on SCTV in Spanish Dracula. 
Um, so yeah, they would come in and they would film in the evening. And the one thing that this allowed them to do, the director, George Melford, he would look at the dailies for the Dracula, the English production, and he would look and see what they film. And he could kind of look at that and say, oh, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to film this from this angle, or I'm going to use a crane shot, which he does with when we first see Dracula in the Spanish version, they have a really effective crane shot where they swoop up on Dracula on the steps, which um, everybody always, you know, goes gaga over. And it's a pretty nice shot. You know, if only it was Bela standing there and not, you know, Carlos with his kind of goofy (laughs) grin. Uh, he almost looks like Count Chocula, too, actually. <laughs> the grin on his face? No kidding. Um, so so Belford would watch all his stuff, and they would figure out, you know, oh, you know, what are we going to do? They also, this, this film is actually like a half hour longer than um, uh, the other Dracula. This is 140. Four minutes to 70 minutes. So what? That's that's actually more like, um, well, yeah, 30, half hour or so. A little over half hour. Yeah. And it's because they actually added stuff back that the other team took out of the script. So um, when Browning was doing his Dracula, he, he'd look at the dialogue and he'd say, eh, let's just cut this dialogue out and get to the point. With uh, Melford, he was like, oh, no, let's keep this dialogue in. So there's more dialogue in certain scenes. He added in extra scenes uh, to show things, you know, that maybe were only mentioned in this in the script and, you know, the other one. So it's a longer movie. Um, It's in some ways, I feel like there's a little more action to the movie, like there's things that you see happening that you just only hear about in the other ones. So there's more stuff going on. Um, the scene on the ship, I think, is much more effective. You know, because in the in the in Dracula, you kind of have this weird little boat in a bathtub floating and flipping and flying <laughs> all over the place, and, and it doesn't match the footage of like Bela coming up and looking all scary and. Um, they have some really good footage, even with Carlos doing his little thing, you know, it's still pretty scary when he comes up and they have one, one of the actors who plays a sailor is able to like open his eyes so wide, you can see all the white around his pupil. Yeah. So it's pretty freaky. Um, so I think there's some more scares in that. And then there's also like more titillation as we were speaking. Oh, yeah. Prior to the pro- broadcast, right. prior, prior to the broadcast, <laughs> I actually have not been drinking, but I was running on the last dregs of adrenaline from the day. Um, as, a, as a Spanish feature, it has cultural differences. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that the, the cultural differences manifests is in uh, dress, and so the women dress differently, which is that they, you know, show off their bodies a little bit more. And especially more sultry. Think, to kind more of sultry. Said, definitely different standards. Right. Right. And so uh, especially there's the scene where after what well, we know as the audience that Dracula has given his blood to Mina or Eva in this case, and she comes out of her boudoir 
to uh, Jonathan or Juan Harker. Yes. And he's like, oh, you're like a changed woman. Well, she's wearing this very thin negligee. Yes. And yes, I believe there was a sighting of (laughs) some uh, boobage. Um, And then some. And then some. And so it was rather shocking because you see these old mm-hmm. films like this. You don't expect to see something like that. Well, I thought I'd have to go to like one of those little video things and put in a quarter to watch. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was had his thumb on the pause button. <laughs> <laughs> Rewind, zoom. Um, yeah. So that's another big difference. Is... Hey, Walker, real quickly, I want to say one of the things that kind of struck me besides the screen time that the armadillo had was uh, the moment where um, Dr. Van Helsing shows or opens the uh, cigarette box with the mirror. Right. So, so yeah, when you talk about them looking back at like what was happening, you know, what did they film this day? Oh, you know, Bella goes, he swats the box down. Well, what are we going to do? Carlos, I want you to hit that box with your cane and shatter, knock shit all over the place. And, you know, so they definitely would give them directions to be more dramatic. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, too, not to make it comical, but um, when Renfield laughs in, in the Dracula, the American Dracula, it's that cadence that he has to that laugh to portray that he's insane or at least borderline <laughs> insane it's like <laughs> you know and, and it's yeah, like well. oh, thank you <laughs> <laughs> but but renfield in the spanish version he portrayed crazy in a whole nother he oh, was a, more maniacal than yeah, yeah it was very manical it's kind of disturbing actually so i think that's another thing and and it may be either that Milford directed them to be more over the top, or it could also be a cultural preference. I don't know. That's a good point. You know, I, I thought that too. I, I don't watch a lot of Spanish television, but I, I know that they communicate facially, you know, at least some of the stuff I've seen. My uncle used to watch soap operas. So, you know, their eyes are very expert, you know, like, Oh, so-and-so is pregnant. And they look back and their eyes go, and I noticed that these actors kind of use their eyes a lot too, very wide open, very, you know. Right. Carlos is always kind of mugging and yeah. has a reaction, like he'll scrunch up his face and do all kinds of really contorted expressions. Yeah. And yeah, if you're not used to it, characters. it's kind of like, well, whoa, okay, that's different. Yeah. Yet effective. So, yeah. It, it's a big difference between the two movies. Mm-hmm. And then one thing I was looking at that I thought was actually similar between the two movies. I mean, there are some non-character shots and things that is reused between the two films, right? Uh, but there's also some of the some of the secondary kind of character actors that are the same in both films. In fact, when you see the the very beginning in the back of the carriage, and you see the woman is like reading. Mm-hmm. from the book she's actually carl emily's daughter yeah and in the bela lugosi version she and i guess renfield are in the back of the uh of the coach or basically towards the front of the coach the back of the shot and then in the spanish version i don't know if she's reading in spanish or if they dubbed her 
I don't know if he even really had dubbing back then. I don't know either. I questioned that. But yeah. they were sitting in the back of the coach, front of the shot, when she's doing the. And it's practically the same scene and everything else. But uh, but yeah, done in Spanish. And then when they get to the town, a lot of the town folk are also the same. Mm -hmm. And again, yeah. are they? Maybe they chose those actors because they could speak Spanish, or like I say, I. I don't know if they really had the capability of doing a lot of dubbing back then. I don't know that they did a lot of dubbing. I think they hired them. What I was reading mm -hmm. is it was a, a completely, almost completely different crew other than the director, the director, they had to have translators yeah. on the Spanish version mm -hmm. to, you know, because he'd done several of these films. So he was, he was adept at, you know, filming the Spanish version of certain films. Um, so maybe they utilize that in in helping them, you know, phonetically give dialogue. I'm not sure. It's kind of interesting. I don't. Maybe we just haven't heard about it, but it's interesting that they did the English and Spanish versions of Dracula, but they didn't do the same for Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein or any of the other films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe by then they could dub. I don't know, but it's interesting. I I think it's a. You know, how they pick the films, I don't know. But I know with a lot of the silent pictures, they would just, you know, so-and-so's riding the horse, you know, to do whatever. And they would just put up, you know, the German version or Spanish right. version. That's easy enough to do. With with the talkies, right? They would, yeah, maybe they started doing what Frankenstein was like a year later. So I don't know. That's an interesting. Uh, and you were saying that Frank or Lord Bloodraw did the. Uh... Chenard Winery, and they he paired up Dracula and Frankenstein. Well, that was a big Halloween pairing back in the 30s. Oh. Put those two films together. And, uh, you know, for a night of terror, horror, whatever. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that was, they definitely used those two as a big double bill for a while. Oh, absolutely. I, I thought it was kind of interesting. Well, actually, let's finish with the Spanish version before we delve into <laughs> other stuff. So, yeah, so, you know, we've discussed kind of some of the differences. And they did, like, one thing Bob kind of mentioned is they used outtakes from uh, the English Dracula. They used scenes that, you know, they had trimmed off of uh, footage from the Drac the English Dracula um, to fill out the film. There's, there's certain things that you can tell, like the stagecoach ride, like at one point in uh, the Spanish Dracula in the sp stagecoach ride, he goes past this big bonfire and there's like no explanation for it. <laughs> right. Um, they just, it was something that Browning had trimmed out of the English Dracula and they just said, oh, we'll throw it back in. And there's even footage when in the opera house scene, part of the footage of Dracula entering the opera house is actually Lugosi. <clears throat> they just decided to reuse that footage. Interesting. So it's an interesting film to look at because we already are so used to the Lugosi version. And then to see this thing, which is just sort of an alternate take on it, you know, really close, but just a little bit different. That's I know another part of the multiverse. <laughs> well, yeah. I was just thinking that yeah, it's like a multiverse version. And, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, it's it's better, you know, it it is more dynamic, it's shot better, et cetera, et cetera. I, while I enjoy it, I think the biggest problem for me is 
there's no Lagos. You can't just plop anybody into that role, you know? And, and for me, no disrespect to uh, Carlos's, you know, family or anything, but I don't think it was a great role for him. (laughs) I don't think it was a great fit. I, I agree. And let's be fair. Everyone who's played Dracula since Lugosi have have done good jobs. Maybe they've done great jobs, but it's not Bella Lugosi. And and that's just Yeah, you're always gonna be compared to Lugosi. Yeah. You know? And then you also have to at this point in time, I think you have to also consider Christopher Lee. You know? So and I think they wisely kind of went in a different, more gothic uh direction, but that's uh one of I mean, you know, even to today when people are portraying a stereotypical vampire, they all have, they all get the Lugosi accent and everything. Else, you know, I'm Count Dracula. Yeah. Know? And uh, so, yeah, he still has his imprint on that character. Right. Even through today. I, I think um, the movie was about a year ago called Renfield and Nicolas Cage plays Dracula in that version of the film and i don't think he was channeling his inner bella lugosi i think he was channeling his inner carlos just the way that his eyes react to some <laughs> of the scenes and i could and, see that yeah I, i'm like okay i i, I understand now yeah, i've I I not, not seen renfield but i it's, did watch voyage last voyage of the demeter which was which was good I recommend. Yeah, well, I want to watch that, but but that Renfield, I I do recommend. It, it's it's a comedy, it, you know, and and so go into it thinking. But Nicolas Cage. So so, what's our thoughts on Dracula English version versus Dracula Spanish version? Do we do we have a preference? I think I know what the preference is. Well, I mean, I don't think I'm going to go back and watch the Spanish version. Many times, <laughs> I will go I, back and watch Bela many times, mm-hmm. which I already you know I have over the years. Right. But um, you know, Spanish Dracula was it was unique. It was definitely a treat. It was definitely a surprise when it came out on the DVD set. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I don't know if a lot of people just they had seen Bela's version so many times that this was slightly different, and they're like, ooh, you know this. It's cool to think this one's better. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I Quality wise, film wise. Yeah. I mean, they're probably both on a par. But yeah, it's the Lugosi factor that elevates the English version, I think, above the Spanish version. I, uh, I really enjoyed it, not just because it was very titillating, but um i don't know it was just it was it was interesting i will watch it again i'm not going to watch it tonight but <laughs> i will watch it again and like i said i mean look how many actors have played a version of of dracula i love gary oldman's um dracula in in um francis ford coppola's uh dracula i i am appreciate his uh kind of like tortured soul take on it he can be an evil sob as well but um i mean bella lugosi you know he's just old school 
vampires. Thank you very much. There yeah. is. You know, he's it for me as far as Dracula goes. Yeah. So I think we, Walker, we have yeah. a, a consensus. You know, I, I do appreciate a lot of things in the Spanish Dracula. And, oh, yeah. You know, if in a, in a perfect world, you'd be able to kind of combine those two into like a perfect movie. But um, yeah, it's just it's Lugosi. And like Bob said, I mean, there are people who have never seen the 1931 Dracula. But if you ask them, like, well, who's Dracula? What does Dracula do? Or what does he say? And they'll say, well, he has like a thing with the cape. And he goes, I want to drink your blood. And, you know, they'll imitate Lugosi. And, you know, one of the things watching these films, one of the things that struck me, made me a little a little sad, uh, was thinking that they they can they could wind up disappearing, you know, because thinking about like who who really is still caring about these movies? It's people, you know, of our age, around our age, um, who grew up with these films who enjoyed them as kids, basically, we will keep buying the Blu-rays and whatever holograms or whatever that, you know, come out. But like a lot of younger folks, this is not their thing. If you want to know what their thing is, look at like what Monster Palooza is, is uh, you know, putting out on their schedule. It's all the slasher stuff from like the 80s and 90s. It's, you know, Freddie and Jason and all that's the stuff they're sentimental about, you know? So. Well, I think everybody's kind of sentimental about whatever they grew up with. Right. Right. Yeah, so I don't know that these films like the universal monsters, um, will they continue to be uh, watched and enjoyed by new audiences or are they just going to sort of fade away and they'll have maybe some cultural resonance in the same way that like people who've never watched them now kind of know like, you know, the sort of stereotype of what Dracula or Frankenstein is, but they will never have seen the movie and have no interest in seeing the movies. I think a lot of it has to do with the parents. Yeah. Well, a parent sit down with their kid and say, Hey, Raise them right. This is a great movie. You really need to watch this film. And, uh, you know, you you love Jason and Freddie and whatever. This is where they came from. So let's just kind of sit down. And, you know, a lot of the nostalgia going forward for the kid is not so much the movie, but the experience of watching the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember sitting with my dad and watching da-da-da-da and, uh, you know, it's the same, like I say, when we do Godzilla Fest and people of all ages come and it's a lot of a lot of parents bringing their kids because they want them to see Godzilla on the big screen and they want them to enjoy what they enjoyed when they grew up. And sometimes the kids come out and go, yeah, it's kind of hokey, you know, but, uh, you know, they try. But that's the only way you're going to keep these things going, whether it's you know, the Universal Monster films or even like the AIP films of the 50s or, you know, Planet of the Apes, whatever. The only way you can keep them going, keep them alive is to share them with the generations that come up after you. I I agree with you. I, I don't think I have a problem. Uh, well, you know, and, and like Monster Palooza, well, the guy that played 
Freddie or Jason are there signing autographs. Bella's gone. You know, Sarah Karloff goes to the sh- well. She used to. I don't know if she's yeah. going anymore. Bella no, Jones will going. sign autographs. What's that? <laughs> I said Bella Junior will sign autographs. Bella, yeah, right. will sign anything. Um, but, yeah, all the kids are out there, and you know, it's like and the grandkids for. I, you know, uh, I don't know if I'm really into getting autographs from the offspring of actors, right. but right. it is yeah. interesting to talk to them. And hear stories of their parents, of sure. their, yeah. or their mothers, or what have you. Uh, I, I, I stories my growing point up is... things. So to have them up on stage, interviews, whatever, mm-hmm. that's interesting. For yeah. them to sit there and charge money to sign autographs, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, to me, different strokes for different folks. I mean, you know, you want to spend money on some of the stuff I'm going to show you in the censor sweep, go right ahead. Other people are going to like, be like, he paid how much for that? And it's like, well, you know, that's my thing. Um, do I enjoy Jason as much as, you know, uh, Karloff's Frankenstein? Not by any stretch of the imagination. I appreciate Jason in the first, maybe three Friday the 13th movies. After that, it's like, eh. Um, not all my nieces and nephews dig Kayla's the one that loves the universal monsters. I've shared them with all, you know, my nieces and nephews, but she's the one that's like, well, let's go see the nun part two. No, you can go see the <laughs> nun part two. I'm going to go home and watch creature from the black lagoon. So, okay. Um, you know, some kids are in the video games. They don't even watch these movies anymore, but oh, yeah. you know, you have to appreciate people like Sven Gulli, Elvira, Bob Wilkins, John Stanley, Vincent Van Dahl, you know, our local creature feature hosts who, who well, Sven Gulli's National, who who put these films out there and the Black Cat and, and you know, Godzilla and all well, those Sven Gulli was showing, he had a contract with Universal for like a year where he was just running all their movies like nonstop. Hey, you know, it's a crying shame that there are going to be some folks that never watched Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Uh, or uh, maybe not, horrible. but... <laughs> I, I might not hassle anybody for that. <laughs> Look, we weren't alive in 1931, as Bob said. None of us saw this uh, at the movies when it originally came out. I saw it on TV. I've since seen a lot on the big screen, you know, at special showings and stuff. But, you know, if you got kids and haven't seen it, show it to them. See if they like it or not. I mean, it's, it's, I think, a... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't match. It's not generational. You know, these I, I use Jasmine a lot with watching these films. And of all the universal monsters, do you know what her favorite is? Uh, I'll let you both have a guess. I think you may have mentioned it. Is okay. It, so you, is it The Invisible Man? Yes. Yeah. And it's a good film, but I'm like, that's your favorite? <laughs> So, um, and then of, of the Godzilla movie, she hasn't seen all of them, but the latest Godzilla versus King Kong, she'll watch that over and over and over again. And I'm kind of like, eh, not my favorite, but, you know, but there's a King Kong city. Yeah, I know, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> not like King Kong city. I, hey, different strokes for different folks, but. Um, well, I mean, that's kind of, you know, yeah. The cool thing about Godzilla is uh, 
they're still making new movies. So, you know, a kid, maybe they don't like those old rubber suit monsters, but they like the new CG version or whatever. There's like a Godzilla for everybody. You know, unfortunately, Universal's been struggling for decades now. Yeah. Trying to rebirth all these, the Universal monsters, which are like big properties for them. But whatever, they just haven't hit on the right note or the way or the best way to it's because make them new yeah they they tried to turn them into superheroes and not monsters yeah, that too. The but the thing is dracula despite universal dracula continues and they keep making movies and shows with dracula and you know as much as i may have concern about these old films dracula will continue to show up in things in, in movies and, and shows, there's new books because now it's public domain. So people are writing books about Dracula. And Dracula is just as vital a character today as he ever was, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Um, he's he's going to live eternally for an eternally, eternity. Uh, undead eternally. Undead eternally. And on that note, yeah. I'm dead and loving it. Uh, let me ask you guys before we get into the censor sweep: Is there a, well, not even modern, but a movie that is outside of the classic monster movies that kind of understood what these monsters? Oh, I, I'm alluding to Monster Squad. I love <laughs> Monster Squad, and there was no way for me to phrase. What movie would you? Well, Dracula is a pretty, he's a real bastard in that movie, which I and think. And he needs works. to be, right, yeah. because he is, you know, the devil incarnate. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, the Wolfman has nards. <laughs> One of the best lines in modern cinema, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, I mean, Monster Squad is good. Um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the newer version, that that's good. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. Del Toro's Wolfman, I thought was really good. I thought Del Toro's Wolfman was good. I like the Frankenstein with, um, oh, God. De Niro? Um, what? De Niro? De Niro, yes. Not, not the entire film, but at one point he's looking at his hands or playing a flute and he asks, you know, am I playing the flute? Is it the hand that remembers how to play? And he's, you know, having this existential crisis, if you will. You know, what am I? Who am I? You know, I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. And what about like uh, The Shape of Water? Oh, one best picture. I yeah. mean, and that was a love I... story to the creature. Well, you know, yeah. Uh, Guillermo del Toro yeah. had been begging Universal for years to let him remake Creature from the Black Lagoon. Right. And they just kept turning him down. So finally he made his own version, which was Shape of Water. And yeah, I mean, they I'm sure they were kicking themselves after that because, uh, right. you know, here he is up on stage accepting the Academy Award for Best Picture. And it's not one of theirs. Not one of theirs. Exactly. Well, they blew it with Monster Squad, too. Not that it didn't win an Academy Award, 
Should have. Um, <laughs> oh, I should have. But, you know, at, at the time, I my memory is that they originally floated it to Universal to do it with them. And they were all like, no, nah, we don't want to do it. And, it's almost like uh, they're afraid, you know. Yeah. Well, Universal turned down Young Frankenstein. Yeah. That's another good one, too, actually. 20th Century Fox. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, here was an established director, Mel Brooks, and they mm-hmm. turned him down. So, yeah. Go figure. And with Del Toro, he was established, turned him down. It's like, take a chance once in a while. You're a bunch of morons. That's right. Then they make a mummy with uh, Tom Cruise. Oh, my God. Freaking Tom Cruise. I can't stand that SOB. No, I I like his Mission Impossible movies. No. I like some of his science fiction movies, but that mummy yeah. was one of the biggest turds anybody ever laid. Tom Cruise is the biggest turd anyone's ever laid. I just don't like that guy. But that's, hey, that, that's we can disagree. That's yeah. Okay. If you just wait Tom until Cruise. he starts playing Iron Man and then you're stuck with it. <laughs> that's when I stopped watching Iron Man. Well, my friends, let us transition over into our sensor sweep, our group sensor sweep. Let me start off by asking, has anyone watched Ahsoka? Yes. Yeah, I watched the whole thing. Oh, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> like I said last time, it's like, yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I think it's probably, you know, just below, I mean, I love the Mandalorian. Ahsoka's like close to that level. Yeah, and definitely better than all that other stuff they released. But Ahsoka had so much going on. Dave Filoni is just brilliant. And, and you know, the use of a Force Ghost was far more effective in Ahsoka's ending than it was in, in Obi-Wan, you know. Qui-Gon shows up and it's like, oh, where you been? It's like, I have a lot of questions for you, Mr. Qui-Gon. <laughs> but, you know, um, will there be a season two? Will there be a movie? Yeah, they, they talk about all kinds of stuff. But the way that it ended uh, with, with the Force Ghost, uh, can we spoil the ending to Ahsoka? You think people will watch it by the time? The podcast is out. It was Anakin. It'll okay, be, I'm, I'm it'll just be gonna... like a, almost a week. So yeah, yeah. Um, it was great. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I don't know that I um, enjoyed the whole. You know, Sabine to me just Sabine's kind of Raffaella in uh, Picard season three. It's like, Neh. but um, it was it was a good. I thought a good good series, good good finale. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I. There's a little frustration to see so many loose ends at the end of the show, but I don't know. I guess it should be expected because, of course, they want to do a season two and a movie and all this other stuff. Uh, But overall, it was really interesting show. A lot of good episodes. Um, You know, a lot of I like the character exploration that they did with Ahsoka and sort of like how being what would it be like to be darth vader's apprentice how would you feel about things you know how would you feel about yourself and your training and Mm -hmm. the training was a big you know Mm -hmm. she was a a 
a warrior. She was a soldier and, you know, not what she expected Jedi life to be. So, yeah. She left the Jedi order, you know? Yeah, she did. So it was good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, Bob, you got anything uh, you'd like to share with us? Uh, any? Well, uh... Let me see. The last episode. Yes. You remember the last episode? On our last episode. I was pushing the uh, Godzilla and Godzilla Raids Again novel. And as I mentioned, since then, Keith Aiken and I have interviewed the translator of the novel. Huh. It was a lot of fun. It was... A, you know, you know, I talk Godzilla all the time. Like you guys talk Star Wars all the time. I talk Godzilla all the time. <laughs> but it was cool to spend an hour plus talking just about the first two movies hmm. and going into a deep dive of the first two films and then how the novels were written and everything else. So it came out really well. And, uh, when we were, you know, we still do Sci-Fi Japan, but for a while there we had Sci-Fi Japan TV, which uh, James Ballard and uh, and another guy, can't remember his name, did for us. And uh, they were living in Japan and they were shooting interviews with people and they were shooting events and what have you. And they'd come out as these 10, 15 minute episodes of Sci-Fi Japan TV. And uh, after a while, you know, they got big over there and, didn't want to do it for us unless we paid them a lot of money. So they don't do it for us anymore. <laughs> so we titled this as a sci-fi Japan special. And uh, we're talking about bringing sci-fi Japan TV back. And uh, just as we go to events or we go to things, um, we'll shoot footage and put it together in episodes and we'll see we'll kind of resurrect it a little bit, but um, definitely something to check out. It's on YouTube uh, just search for Sci-Fi Japan TV and click on that, and it'll have all the old episodes plus this new one. And then I also got a book, a book, book a bleeding called, book, uh, a blooming book called Ring of Fear. Mm. This is by Norman England, and we covered his book uh, Behind the Kaiju Curtain a while back. This is a collection, a big, thick collection of all his articles he had written for Fangoria magazine. Hmm. So there's everything in here from Gamera to Godzilla to The Ring to Juan to Battle Royale, et cetera. So all the way up to, I think he's got a article towards the end on Godzilla Singular Point, which uh, was just a couple of years ago. So uh, definitely cool reading. You know, if you've read his articles in Fangoria, then yeah, now you got them all in a book. Or if you haven't, then you've got a lot of reading in front of you and uh, you can definitely check it out. You can get it Amazon or, you know, wherever quality books are sold. Awesome. New reading. Walker, would you like to go next? Why, certainly. <laughs> so in keeping with tonight's theme, you want to... Shout out to this fine reference book. Very oh, and, and just I mean, to remind everyone, if you're watching on YouTube, no, you can they can see, see it on these. YouTube. Yeah, you can see everything oh, on YouTube. If you're not watching, I I held up 
a copy of Universal Horrors, the studio's classic films, 1931 to 1946, by Tom Weaver and Michael and John Brunus. This thing is pretty thick. It's it's pretty amazing because they go chronologically through the Universal horror films, not just the monster movies, but all of the horror films that Universal made. And they have a lot of really good inside information uh, about, you know, the productions, how they were put together, uh, how they were received at the time, things like that. So if you're into the Universal films, uh, you probably really enjoy it. I know it's a McFarlane title, if that means anything to our listeners out there, which probably to me it won't. means it's not cheap. It's not cheap, but it actually <laughs> also available on Amazon, which sometimes means you can get a little bit cheaper um, than McFarlane. And and uh, I know Tom Weaver. I used to be on the classic uh, horror film board years ago, and uh, he was a regular there. So if you're if you ever have been on that classic horror film board, there's a lot of folks there with a lot of information so um and he's well, really a, 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 Tom Weaver do a lot of the commentaries on the he, yeah he has done a lot of commentary um on a, a lot of you know the the universal but also a lot of like 1950s horror and sci-fi as well so uh yeah check it out that is cool um i've i've Follow Walker online on Twitter and and uh, I follow Larry. I I happen to see that no, she had mentioned the book and I'm like I gotta have that book and got it just in time for the. And I saw the so. saw the name McFarland and said, "Damn you!" <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a good book. I I've just barely scratched the surface on it, but um, like Karen had said before. It's a great reference uh, book to have. Uh, everyone should have something like that in their library. It's good to pull out when you're watching one of those films and just to kind of read while you're watching it. And, oh, okay. That's who that is. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Well, my friends, I have a good friend of mine. Uh, he retired. We worked together for many, many years. Dennis Brown subscribed me to scary monsters magazine and i'm holding up a cover and um this issue is their uh, fall and it's most horrible hag of all <laughs> and there's a lot of different you know uh women on here uh, who slew auntie rue uh betty davis is on here and uh they have uh susan hart in there uh, <laughs> i don't know i haven't actually read it yet but that came in the mail just the other day so thank you dennis uh if you're listening and um those of you at home scary monsters it's actually a very good uh magazine they have great articles in it from our friends from super seven and this is the black and white version. Um, Super 7 has little bubble baths. I have one of the creature oh, yeah. back there. On the shelf. And um, this is actually, this comes with a bubble wand. Uh, this is from Hot Topic. Uh, Super 7 Hot Topic. Hot Topic Bride of Frankenstein. 
the monster of Frankenstein. And these are the black and white versions. They're not the color versions. Super 7 has a ton of these in Bubble Bath. Basically the same thing, same shape, same. And the creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, These are fun little things to display. If you want to go out and blow bubbles with them, go right ahead. Well, those are those are based on the old Soaky toys. Those are based, yes, yeah, very cute. much. In fact, so. I was able to run down an original Soaky toy of the creature. Oh, nice! So I have that. But yeah, the Soaky they made Frankenstein monster, the creature, the mummy, and Wolfman, I believe. But they, Super they, Seven, they've got like seven different ones. They have a ton of them: the Metaluna, uh, mutant. Oh. Um, the Invisible Man, which I'm going to get Jasmine for our anniversary. No. I have the Invisible Man. It's right here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> here it is, dear. Open the bag. And um, But anyway, Super 7 has a ton of Universal Monster stuff, as well as all these other licenses. Um, so if you get a chance, check them out. Yeah, I just got uh, some. Those... Oh, no, it wasn't Super 7. I think it was Mondo. Ah, yeah, Mondo's another good company. Super 7... If you're in the Bay Area, they have a shop down uh, in San Francisco, Yeah, I want to say. And there's one in San Diego, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, they're also online. So yeah, I go down to the shop and drop off cards whenever we have shows coming up. And they usually come out buying something. Always. <laughs> I really like there they had a uh, creature, from the, creature from the Black Lagoon jacket. Which oh, is- yeah. Got a line of Godzilla shirts, many of which are very cool. They've got a shirt of Hedora that glows in the dark. The small one is cooler when it glows in the dark. <laughs> they had a really cool Iron Giant shirt where the Iron Giant was in the back and the little bolt was uh, in the front. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a good company. Um, any last thoughts or comments, my friends, before we close out this? episode of our podcast well i mean if if viewers and listeners have not gotten enough halloween's coming up later this month and uh what are we going to do for halloween vampires Vamp- a bunch more of vamp- more vampires more, like, more. we're not limiting to drac and the nos we're like opening the vault and letting them all free <laughs> All the vampires you could ever imagine and more. Yes, it'll be a 400 hour podcast. Vampapalooza. <laughs> so get ready, put a cushion, an extra cushion under your seat. As we're, we're going up some extra popcorn. Deep, we're, deep, deep. We, we are. We're going to have some fun picks. Um, I've already started uh, watching some of mine. Which reminds me, besides Ahsoka, Jasmine and I were watching um, Midnight Mass. It's a miniseries on Netflix. And um, I don't want to spoil it for you guys in case you watch it, but what a twist. I, I was I was kind of surprised at, at how well they played religion and and horror and and uh, you know, anyway. It's it's pretty good if you guys get a chance to check it out. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Currently You've binging it. through still Crime Story and the Invaders. Mm. 
Marco, are you still watching Invaders? Uh, very slowly. I am watching Invaders. I think I'm in like the fifth or sixth episode. Mm. They just had two episodes. I was like, oh, they had one episode, the one I watched last night or the night before. And Debbie was walking through the room. I go, check out who the guest star is on this one. And she looked and she saw him and she's like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> what? It's Jack Lord. That's Steve McGarrett, Hawaii Five O. Here's your generational gap. Felix Leiter, Doctor No. It, it all boils down to what we are exposed to. Jazz and I watching Twilight Zone, and it's the episode where the guy has to give like the best pitch of his life uh, to avoid Death coming to collect, and he's like, "Nope, nope, I'm not going to do it." So Death has the little girl, his friend, get hit by a car. It's like, well, we'll take her. And he's like, that's not fair. And Jasmine's like, that's the uncle from Mary Poppins that was jumping on the bed and laughing. And I can't think of the actor's name, but I'm like, yes, that's him. So I mean, that's half the fun is like picking out. I, mean, he, I, I watched one the other night with Suzanne Plachette. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know. I th- I'm sure Debbie Hayes when I say, you know who that is? <laughs> that was Bob Newhart show. Yeah, yeah that was. Uh, and then we started watching uh, Kolchak. She actually has an interest now in Kolchak. And she's like, oh, what? Is that really Jack the Ripper? I'm like, in Kolchak it is. <laughs> it's like, what kind of luck do you have to have to always bump into monsters? I'm like, hey. Hey, we discussed that on the X-Files episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're having fun. Anyway, my friends, um, stay safe. This is a lot of fun. Uh, those of you out there listening, please like, subscribe, and comment on our Facebook page, our uh, Twitter. Uh, we have an Instagram, obviously YouTube. Um like the heck out of YouTube and, and spread the word. Um, we appreciate you guys listening. We appreciate you guys participating, making comments. And um, yeah, get ready for some some vampire palooza type uh, uh, episode coming up. And uh, who knows, maybe Bob and I might throw a little footage of our Halloween display on that episode. So you can see. It all depends on when we record it yeah and whether or not it's raining it's a downer. Well, i might have to do a post a post halloween censor sweep uh, yeah there you go <laughs> so, so uh okay well you guys take care stay safe this is planet eight signing off peace out on that note this will conclude this transmission from planet eight We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8, signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end.